Sean Duffy is co-founder and CEO of Omada Health, a virtual first care provider for pre-diabetes, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and musculoskeletal disorders. A mouthful, yeah. That's a lot. Uh, with nearly two decades of healthcare experience, Sean is widely recognized as a thought leader in the industry's future. He has written extensively about digital health and the healthcare trends in the New England Journal of Medicine, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and TechCrunch, among other publications. Sean has also spoken, spoken at notable conferences such as the World Economic Forum, Annual Conference, Clinton Global Initiative, Healthcare Matters Summit, the Society for Behavioral Medicine, J.P. Morgan Health Conference, and others. Under Sean's leadership, Omada has been recognized as one of Fast Company's 50 most innovative companies in the world and a technology pioneer by the World Economic Forum. Prior to Omada, Sean worked at both Google and IDO, a former MD, MBA candidate at Harvard, and he holds a BS in neuroscience from Columbia University. Wow. Very cool. Thank you so much, Sean. Um, I'm I'm very excited to have you here and, and very excited to learn more about your uh, your journey. And again, thanks for sharing your time with us. Yep. Okay, so let's let's start it off with um for those who haven't heard about o Omada, uh, could you explain who are its customers and what problem it is that you're helping them solve? Yeah, yeah, perfect. Well, firstly, yeah, you know, thank you for having me on. Hey, everybody. Um, uh, and then, you know, as I as I share remarks, definitely, you know, jot down things I say that pique your attention, and, and you know, feel. I think we've got some Q and A time at the end, so uh, you know, in that, feel free to ask literally anything and everything. So, um, yeah, I'm Sean, co-founder and CEO of Omada. Omada, per the TF, we're a virtual care company. So, uh, you know, for those not in healthcare, think of us just like any other provider. I mean, we contract as a provider, we file claims just like any other provider. Yeah, it, you know, yet we don't have any offices and we focus explicitly on clinical areas where I recognized at the early days that digital could not just be incrementally better, you know, but transformationally better. So, you know, out there on behalf of, uh, you know, Omada, I call us a between visit provider. Um, because for things like diabetes, it's so clear that saying to a patient, hey, you know, look, I'll see you in six months between then and now, take your meds, lose weight, test your sugars, it, it doesn't work. So you have to have a lot of proactivity, you know, be there for someone on a day-to-day -day basis. And so our job and task and contribution is really to find a path um, to really do that at scale and, and change the way that these types of conditions where an in-person visit model doesn't work, you know, can be handled for the, uh, for the country. Where where did the uh, where did the idea of this come from? Because I know, you know so yeah. I, so you worked at Google and all that. But like, where where did this? Yeah, where did this derive? So I so I um you know I studied neuroscience in undergrad at Columbia. I had done my pre med recs, but it was uh, I graduated in two thousand six. And you know, for those of you who can kind of bring your you know brains back to then, like Silicon Valley was amazing back. That's always interesting. But it was like that was right when interactive web apps were like a thing, and you know you didn't have to click on the corners of MapQuest, and like Google was just like <laughs> flying. Right. And like, so at night I'd be reading, you know, Slashdot, like yesterday's Hacker News, but not cracking open my open my biochem book. Um, yeah. So I, I actually literally I just like panicked about going straight to medical school. So worked at Google, realized that the worlds weren't so black and white. Um, applied to decided I could, I want to do something tech meets healthcare, went to medical school. Harvard has an MD MBA program, mm. uh, 
was in it, they they asked, I thought I'd build like the Starbucks for primary care. That was kind of my vision back then, but I, but I was in it. They asked that you took take an internship along the way that blends business and medicine. And I had known some folks at IDEO, um, uh, design firm headquartered in Palo Alto. And so came out there, thought I was going to spend a summer, but um, in this funny chain of events was given a little bit of a budget to explore opportunity in digital health because it was the really early days. And it was funny. It was like, that was 2011. It was like right when like Fitbits were coming onto the scene and like step trackers and wearables world. And then um, I'd be with my like tech friends from Google and they're like, this is going to change healthcare. Mm. And then I'd be with my medical school classmates and they're like, that's cute, Silicon Valley. Like, get ready to get burned again. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, where is the evidence? What disease are you targeting? Like, you're like, literally, like, you don't know anything. So, so I was like, the world's needed to hear each other better. So the operative question for Mana became, well, how might one build a more evidence-based digital health company where you kept the product and design and tech bar high, but just found a way to earn the trust of a very risk-averse buying market Mm -hmm. um so uh you know so that, that that led to like the condition areas because easy it's easy to kind of explain why these are really intractable clinical problems for the country and there's cost benefit and you know and ways to use technology so that was kind of the genesis so you're you're already at a series e raised over 400 million uh long journey Everyone always looks at that last thing that was done and, you know, success overnight sort of deal that you see on TechCrunch happen all the time. Yeah. Um, when, how did you, you know, how did you sign up those first customers, right? You're, you're saying like, how do we, how do we keep that design up there? But how, how can we gain the trust of these customers yeah. are very conservative. So like, how did you go about doing that? You know, it's really hard and it's, it's like, in healthcare, especially, it's like an ultra risk averse buying market. So, you know, I think it oftentimes tech entrepreneurs will come to me and be like, hey, I'm super interested in healthcare, like, you know, 20% of the GDP, like huge opportunity, clearly. And the first thing I make sure is like, what is their purpose? Like, what's the why? Mm. Um, because if it's like, oh, untapped market and I could, you know, make a lot of money, that actually will not serve you or the business well because it's it, it literally is the double black diamond of enterprise entrepreneurship mm. um yet yet the so that's a headwind yet the tailwind is it's easier to find purpose where and the purpose allows you to kind of abstract yourself from the business and suffer more punches you know what i mean so it's like we just we just kind of remembered those early visits with people with diabetes in their homes we're like i don't care we'll just swing and keep swinging and like <laughs> mm. so let's you can find yeah, let's hope that yeah. we're right let's get this right mm -hmm. yeah because it's at the end of the day i mean your your comment there there is no i mean i'm battle-hardened enough now to know that there is no such thing as an overnight success it's like it's just mm -hmm. like gritting it out is usually like what's required and just constantly listening to the market and constantly trying to like take a first principles approach to serving your customers so the uh, early days of getting customers you know was a bit about that in um this is probably true in any enterprise buying market, but you just need to find the people that are like open-minded to taking a career risk because they believe that like something needs to be done differently. Mm. Um, I remember one of our first customers, which was HealthNet, this payer in California. It was a medical director that like just viewed it as an injustice that metabolic outcomes were so poor and everyone was just progressing from pre-diabetes to diabetes in the country. Um, 
and thought that that would actually be differentiating for health net to take like a proactive stance here. But I'm, you know, I remember this moment, I'm like sitting with this person in a WeWork, or like five people. And he's like, he's literally like, and he wanted to come visit us. I'm like, shoot, because I would have much rather visit him. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, we were, and he's like, Sean, like, I just got to be honest. Look, look like we're, we're in a WeWork. You probably had to book time for this room. <laughs> I can see your entire headcount. You have people knocking on the door that it's their time to use it. Yeah. I can see your whole headcount right there. Like what gives, and I'm writing, I'm like about to write you into like a five-year contract with one of our biggest customers. Like what, what literally gives me any confidence you're even going to be here in five years. And, you know, it's funny. I think what I said was like, look, you know, we're backed by great investors that have plenty of dry powder to help preserve our mission here. But, but it's funny. What I wanted to say is like, if you sign this contract, like, <laughs> we'll survive. Yeah. We'll survive. Like you literally are in the driver's seat. So yeah. You know, and then like, they're like, well, so, you know, how do you typically implement? And you're like, <laughs> I'll tell you after we do this one. <laughs> so it's this amazing dance. You're like, um, you come up with tactics and be like, look, we, you know, we tend to think really flexibly at our stage. Like, you would know, love examples of your best in class implementations that we could perhaps use as references. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Oh yeah. I, I, I love that you have to say like, well, it's all, it's, it's, it's personalized. Like not everyone has yeah. the same exact journey. So let's talk about your journey. Yeah, um, exactly. Like I, I want, you know, I found that implementation approaches need to be really specific to each organization and it's more stage. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. How, how did you know um, which particular enterprise to start with? Um, cause for, for a lot of founders, right. It's like yeah. getting started. I know that every level is, is, is difficult, right. And matter of fact, you know, I, I have friends that did the, the B, the C, the mm. D and each level brings a whole new set of obstacles when it comes to product market fit to scaling and all that stuff. Yeah. But just the beginning for, for many of us that, you know, are in, in this new venture that we have, we're, we're there. Um, how did you decide? You know, so you, you got to find that evangelist within that enterprise. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Did you, how did you go about in terms of contacting? Was there certain segmenting that you did that you're like, only this particular enterprises make sense for us uh, within the diabetes? Like was diabetes your, your go-to that was the subject that was brought up for them? You know, for people that maybe have a, a multiple set of products yeah. Uh, that their software helps solve. Like, do you stick to one and that's what you try and, you know, approach with? How, how do you do it? Yeah. I mean, back then we were really in like the, you know, the, the, the pre-diabetes and like advanced weight management category. We hadn't expanded yet to other areas. Um, mm. So I, we tried, I was like trying to be all sophisticated, like let's segment the market and the customer type relative to obesity prevalence or like employee churn and like to be, to be honest, it's like, I basically threw all that away because the person mattered so much. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, and any customer matters. So it's like, if the evangelist happens to be at an org, which, you know, maybe has a slightly less of an obesity issue, they still have some issue, but if they're willing to buy, they're willing to buy. It was like, you know, so it's, it was, um, I ended up, you know, being on this crusade, especially in a risk averse buying market to just find the folks where they just saw the problem. For us, it tended in what we do to be like clinical executives. 
you know, and there's enough, there's like, you take a hundred, there's five that are like, they like truly care about like, you know, like this issue enough where they're willing to make the butt. Now a lot will all will care in some capacity because it's diabetes is an enormous issue, but it's like, you are taking a career risk if you bring in an early company. So right. you have to find that subset. And so the, the segmentation I found was washed away entirely because yeah. you really had to find that person and that person could live in any organization. So it's just shots on goal. And like, and I know that technology, you know, uh, is fast. This, this, this space, this industry moves really fast. The channels that work for you then, um, I'm curious to know what what was that work for you at that time in terms of getting in front of these customers? Was it conferences or was it that email marketing or, uh, you know, was it spending a ton on blogs or in that content marketing? Uh, and does that resonate now? Obviously, you're, the company's in a very different phase, but does that, are those channels still working or the, and would love to learn a, about the channels that work for you now when it comes to customer acquisition? Yeah, I mean, it was like, it was kind of a mix. It was, um, I mean, the early ones were like, it was like conferences. I tend to think the mini ones are better and like the, you know, like the regional ones versus like go to the national ones. Right, I massive. Mm -hmm. True to this day. It's like the, um, like we get more success for like the regional Pacific business group on health meetup that includes like some of the local benefits leaders than like the national conference board where there's a thousand vendors. Mm. Um, so like, you know, it, where, wherever you're selling to, they'll tend, tend to have that like national conference. They also might have like regional meetups. Um, and then, and then, you know, it's funny that it's just a little bit of like serendipity too. Like we closed Stanford hospital as a customer for their employees early on. And there was just an advisor that I was like, you know, loved and was trying to, trying to secure as an advisor. And he liked it so much that he just, and he had a lot of credibility over there. Like I show up just to try to convince him to work with us as the advisor. He's like, oh, that's cool. Happy to advise. But he just brought me over to the benefits office and was like, hey, we just need to, we need to deploy this for our employees, please. Wow. I love that. Now, at the end of the day, it was this person's decision. That was the beginning of like a year and a half long sales process. But it's like, that kind of opens the door. Um, and then critically, what I found early on, especially in a risk-averse buying market, is I not once called ourselves a startup. Like we've been a, a digital health company from literally three people on mm. because it is the opposite of attractive to buy from a startup in enterprise healthcare, like the literal polar opposite of attractive. So the whole like, oh, it's cool to be a startup thing. I dial that down as much as possible. And then, and then you, you have to, for me, this was particularly important because I had never, I mean, I was really green when I founded the business. It's kind of like, I never hired anybody. I didn't know what to, I never met an investor. Yeah. Um. So, and I didn't know how, how the business, I didn't know how business worked or the business of healthcare. I could read a clinical trial. So it's like, I, I just recognized quickly that you almost had to over earn the credibility. So I just mm -hmm. like, you know, if other people were just looking at like the summary news article on what the FDA said relative to the mobile health guidelines, I'd read the actual 100 page PDF and like come out like running circles around the people that just read the summary view mm. and, and just multiply that times like 50. And what happens is like in the ether, as you go about evangelizing the business, 
your answers and the way that you see the world just become somewhat more precise. And they, and then you you rise from like, oh, who's this person building an app to like, wow, they, they seem to like really understand healthcare. <laughs> so I love that. You have to just like, that. just chew on the raw material. And, you organically and, uh, become a thought leader. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just consuming everything, you organically force yourself to become a thought leader. And it's no totally. And what you'll find is it's like it's the lazy way to just like read the summaries. Like you get on the CMS website and like read the actual PDFs, and then and then it's um, and then like it's not that hard actually. It's funny. Mm. You just need to carve out like the you know the two cups of coffee in three hours. I, I'm gonna jump into the product marketing fit, but before uh. I, in terms of, you know, once you do find product market fit, what are some things that you can do about it? But uh, before doing that, very interested in pricing model uh, when you got started and how did you figure out, you know, it's great hearing the stories, like, right? Like one of your first customers came from the advisor and it kind of like serendipitous sort of deal, but obviously you're, 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 you're testing so many different channels, having all these different conversations when it comes to pricing, did that, I mean, did you nail it from the get-go or was that something that, uh, you know, it was the standard and it's very straightforward and how you go about charging these companies or did that evolve? No, it, I mean, it evolved a bunch. In fact, it was probably my biggest mistake like ever at Omada was not putting my, putting as much thought into pricing as, hmm. as uh, you know, as as one, one should. Um, because you don't, I, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't in touch with, a like you know the like how a PNL manifests over the course of a business life to understand what a lever that is. Um, now we rectified it. It's like I ran like a big pricing project like you know five years ago that like you know tuned, optimized, like thought about how the packaging worked, like all of that. So the um. So in know, the beginning, when you were doing the pricing you weren't keeping consideration the margins, like the profit margins or the gross margins or any of that. We were, like it, we were you, you were. Mm -hmm. you know we were trying to but it's like it's just um we weren't doing it as a sophisticated way as one should and then truth be told you kind of don't know your cost structure right i was gonna say you're working on imaginary stuff i don't have a finance team i was literally like i was our bookkeeper i don't know like what's the end state for what are like you know what i mean the um so i think early on two rules of thumb one is do everything you can to optimize for the recurring nature if you can of pricing such that you have as long of a tail as possible if it's possible in your product category so like you know uh SaaS obviously that's inherent you know gopro has to sell a new gopro every year and you know go from like you know seven eight nine black like, <laughs> like right so uh try it if you can relative to how your product delivers value you know air toward more longevity and revenue and then price way higher than you think if you're selling an enterprise. Like you literally, if 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 you're not getting like that reaction when a buyer sees your pricing, you're doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> like because that. now, because you're not what I what I found is a deal like you don't if you price at a level that surprises people relative to the cost. Usually, that just turns into negotiation on pricing, not like you know kick you out of the room. Mm. Um, and, so better and, to err on a much higher number that then you negotiate if that's the case, rather than a number that correct. they're like, oh, or might be a red flag for them. I'm guessing, right? If they see something that doesn't even add up with 
at all yeah. to what they're talking or, about they must they might assume you you don't know what the hell you're talking about well they're probably gonna anything they see they're gonna probably be like well that's a high watermark mm. so you have to and what i recognize is like what what an enterprise procurement process was like you literally like it, and this is no fault of ours. it's just the way people buy things and it's it's fair i mean like we did this with our procurement team it's like um you know you're you're like the, the way a procurement leader in an enterprise company wins is they shave off like 10%, you know, 20%, like they, they like, you know, mm -hmm. well, we might go with this partner versus this one. Like they try to get deals. So you have to, if you don't bake that in, <laughs> to like, you're <laughs> right. toast. You right. literally, cause they're going to get that regardless. Right. So you have to just understand that enterprise buying motion involves like essentially a list that's like, way higher and everybody expects to pull it down. And I, I think I just didn't know because I'd never sold anything in my life. I mean, I didn't even know what the contract was. I like, didn't know how that worked. So I'm just like, let's just show the price that we feel like would be reasonable. <laughs> well, we'll be fair. Uh, that's funny. Um, well, let's, let's jump into product market. Um, so you signed up a number of customers. Uh, it's starting to slow uh, snowball. It's growing. Uh, how do you realize when was the moment that you said I have product market fit and like, what were indicators for that? And then also what should founders ask themselves uh, or make sure to avoid when they think they have found product market fit? Yeah. So I, step one is like, come to a, like somewhat of a reason sense of what your sales cycles are. And, and I'll, let me just kind of elaborate on why that's important for a step. Um, that will be, you will have a very different experience of product market fit, depending on the length of your sales cycles. So, you know, in consumer, you almost can get it instantly. It's like literally, as long as you like get what you have in front of people, you're like, wow, people seem to really want this. Right. In, in like a SMB play in enterprise, let's say it's like, you think you can sell these deals in three, four months. You'll start to like see the pipeline fill. You'll start to feel it to manifest. If you're in our world where it's literally sales cycles, you just love it or hate it. They're like year and a half, two years. You may have it and no points will show up. Hmm. And, and so it's like in that world, you can get a lot of skepticism internally from your team. Do we have product market fit? Like, is this working? Like nobody seems to be buying this. Your if you don't have like investors that are experienced with long sales cycles, they won't know to look at the proxy measures. Like they'll like, you know, three quarters in, they'll be clearly we have the wrong strategy here. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, I was just gonna say, how many then with that so with that sales cycle is so long? What do you give yourself in terms of uh, time to look back, right? Are you saying like, let's look back at the last four years and 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 engage from there? You know, like how do you, uh, how yeah. can you put forward that long-term view and make it something that's apparent? I mean, you can, you, you can look at, you can try to look at like proxy measures of like, you know, are, are people willing to book like even meetings with us? Like that's mm -hmm. kind of a, a semblance of product market fit. And, you know, in like some sales process measures, but it's really, um, unfortunately, until you actually land the deals and they manifest into revenues, you're not going to have points on the scoreboard. And it's like any proxy measure will be viewed with crit like critique. Um, 
so you know it is a funny vexing challenge to to manage through that you know i i think the most important thing is expectation setting where it's like here's how we're going to know whether or not we're on track for something versus not and that's both at the team level but also at the board and the investor level right and it's like it's like firstly you know are we in a space that matters the signal for that is going to be can we even get the meetings? So we got to study <laughs> and monitor it. And like, you know, will the consultants meet with us? Do they agree that we're in a space that matters? You know, secondly, do we have something that serves the needs here? Like, does one meeting turn into the next? Like, we're going to quantify our sales process and pipeline here. You know, thirdly, like, how do the metric, like, can we get people even into solutioning and contracting? And, and, and you know, but because of our sales cycles, you know, I'm just going to paint a vision where we could be in a meeting four quarters from now, not see this manifest financially, have perfect product market fit. And we're all going to question that. Mm. So we got to remember the conversation right now at that moment in time. And remember that here's the things we need to look for to either feel centered that we're on the right track or, or the warning signs that we may be off. I love that. Uh, let's, let's jump into uh, scaling and uh, some of those challenges so uh, on LinkedIn, you mentioned that Omada had recently crossed 1 million members. Uh, congratulations. Um, and, but, you, but you said to create real impact, you aim to get tens of millions, right? So how do you, how do you plan to scale now that you're at that 1 million member mark? How do you plan to scale you know, 10x? Uh, any advice that you've come across from other founders that now get you to that next category of, of, of growth? Well, yeah, I mean, I, like, I guess I kind of like, to, I mean, I, I don't know what will be in store. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds great. <laughs> Gets everyone excited. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the good thing is there's like, you know, there, um, you build, it's like you build an engine at, you know, even at the, like the mark that we're at, like, you've got to like, you've had to like refine some of the critical things. Mm. So, you know, in an ideal world to go from a million to 10 is less of a leap than go to go from a thousand to a million. Mm. Um, you, you know what I mean? But we'll, we'll find out. I mean, I think the, the TAM is there in our space. Um, and then we've got, like we've built and developed a lot of organizational capabilities to, I think uh, at scale, like execute against that TAM. So it'll be very challenging. It'll be very hard, but, but I think that like, hopefully it's a little bit like we've, we, you know, we've got um enough modularity in what we do that, that, uh you know, we can just continue to stay ambitious. When did it make sense for you? This is in line with, with growth. And you mentioned about advisors that you, for, even from the beginning that you were thinking of bringing on board, when did it make sense for you? Uh, maybe thinking of it as advice for founders now, but where does it make sense to have, that board or uh, have those expert advisors be part of your journey? I mean, I think a board can make sense at the, either if you raise a larger seed or at the A. I mean, one could one could structure it such that like, if you do want to take on a board seat at the seed, it's like, look, let's just have the seat by automatic roll off at the A, but let's, you know, and then we can have a conversation on it still makes sense based on, you know, the pro forma ownership and the business needs. It kind of depends. the 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 early stage, you take on risk and opportunity in creating a board. the um The most important thing I found is is the person 
precisely aligned with the vision for the company. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, do you, be, because if you get strategic drift early on, you get into like tensions at the level of the board, relative to like where you want to take the business. You know, do you want to like pivot to consumer if the enterprise side takes too long? Or like, shouldn't we be doing this? You're like trying that. So, you, you know, the we're blessed in that our early investors carried a lot of strategic alignment with me and, and my co-founders on where we wanted to take this. And then you didn't shy away from investing in a clinical trial that was going to take three years and cost, you know, a million dollars. Like you, mm -hmm. um, because you recognize that it was important. Mm -hmm. what, what a board, what a board does do for you is it kind of forces that regular quarterly like inspection of like, where are you doing? You know what I mean? Like the best mm -hmm. boards you're, you are, it's, you know, you're in the trenches, like your to-do list is infinitely long, it will never get shorter. And so like the best boards, like kind of, you know, for that moment, pull you up out of the gopher, gopher hole, like force you to look around a little bit and throw you right back in. <laughs> so mm. so yeah. that I think is useful. I think in large part, advisors don't have a lot of utility mm. um, or, or they, or, or rather they're, maybe I'm saying that wrong, it, or their, their utility is specific and fleeting mm. where it's like, you know, you may need this specific like advice in a certain area and find someone that can provide it. And like, you know, if you're doing your job right, you'll have like asked more questions than a three-year-old to like understand like how what they know can impact your business. And then you find you're just like, you kind of tapped out on like how the utility is. Yep. So when I get asked to be an advisor, I'm like, I'll just help you. Like, don't worry about like, <laughs> <laughs> Just it's, give me the question you have in mind and I'm happy to answer. Yeah. So it's not, um, I don't know the, the, and I don't, I mean, I, I've never found that investors were like, oh my gosh, this company has like the world-class list of advisors. So I, I you, you want to, and most of the utility has come yeah. from like the, the, the other CEOs in my space and like, just like, you know, the community. I love that. I love that. Same likewise. And, and I feel like this is why why this exists, right? These, these groups for us to be able yeah. to learn from one another's, uh, you know, mistakes and, uh, and this is priceless. You mentioned about the series a, and you're talking about like, uh, for board members, uh, in terms of fundraising. So you've, you know, you've, you've raised over 450 million, some, some, some number, uh, some very large number, right? What, what advice, would you give your younger self if, if it, when it comes back to fundraising and what are things that founders should keep in mind as they're going through this journey also? Yeah. So, I mean, step one is like, make sure you're like centered with the purpose of fundraising. And, and I felt like I always kind of was like, it's like, I never like actually felt like any sense of like exuberance or celebration in like raising money it's like i honestly if we could bootstrap omada and still get the scale like that we've got and have the impact we've got like that'd be the best route but it's not it's not possible like you mm. need you need venture to like bust through bring um, in the most talented people you know that's yeah. right and like and just you know make sure that you can you know be there to to get a couple sales cycles under your belt like you have to be able to fund the headcount to, to mm -hmm. do that. So you need venture, especially in our space. Um, and, and, you know, so that's, that's kind of like a good, helpful orientation. Like if you feel yourself thinking more about like, oh my gosh, how fun will it be to raise that round versus like, 
am I really solving my customers' problems? Like your brain is tricking you on on like real value. Um, in terms of the actual fundraising process and tactics, the best thing possible is to work to really empathize and sit in the seat of an investor. And like, if you have friends that are GPs, like, you know, buy them coffee, multiple coffees and like help to get, get a sense for what the world's like, like how, what are their accountabilities? Who are their bosses? What are their LPs like when they have to report to their LPs? What are the things that the LPs care about? What is their fund cycle? How does a fund work when you love a deal? How do you socialize it? What is like, you know what I mean? Like the, um, it's, and once you have a sense for, okay, I'm living in their life, that will massively accelerate your ability to raise money because you just have empathy for what they're doing and their craft. And that will allow you to like, you know, not get duped by like, oh my gosh, I got this like second needed with Sequoia. Here comes a term sheet. Right. right. Which like early founders always do when, you know, if you get invited to a Monday morning partner meeting, maybe you got a 50 to 50 chance of getting a term sheet because like any voice can be terminal to a deal. So, right. you know, so it's just literally it's empathy for the craft of investing. Like that's the number one, the number one. Um, I love how you phrase you phrase it, the empathy, because uh, I think about it as just incentives as well. Like what are they incentivized for? But it's it's it's. It, mm -hmm. Uh, your sounds way better. <laughs> I, li I like when you say empathy versus incentives, uh, but it's true uh, because it's, it's all tied. It's all tied to uh, you know, what they're yeah. hoping for and what they're looking for. It makes a ton of sense. So and recognizing gonna... that, like um, last thing on this and recognizing that, um, you know, finding an attractive outcome for the business is, is not mutually exclusive with treating their, them and their craft with a lot of respect, because it's like, um, I think that weeds out folks that you wouldn't want to work with anyway. And and, and it is a very big deal to lead a, a deal as a GP. It's the least, venture is not scalable. You literally, as a general partner, you can maybe take on like like eight, nine boards and then you're like at max. Right. And your entire career is like dependent on those being successful. Yep. So it's like, I've seen founders make missteps fundraising, like, you know, treating the GPs poorly. I've seen GPs make missteps in attracting quality deals by treating the entrepreneurs poorly. So mm -hmm. it's like, you, you know, and, and make sure to recognize that there's no like both sides need to, it's not a um, negotiation in venture investing and with, with a VC, it's not like a zero sum thing. You can find a world where, you know, you're serving the company's best interest and you're getting a good partner that feels respected, even if they're like, dang, I had to pay a lot for this deal. Yep. Thank you, Sean, so much for your time. All the best. Okay, all right, bye.